This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program's live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, Stanford professor and author Leah Weiss is joined in conversation by Dean of Alumni Richard Boogs to explore practical, evidence-based strategies for using ancient wisdom traditions to improve your work. This event was recorded on May 3rd, 2018 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you and have you here with us tonight. It's lovely to be with you and all of you. So congratulations on this book. It's really quite terrific. And it was really fun to read it, thinking that I'd get to meet you and ask you some questions and get to learn a little bit more about some of the things that went on. And I'd like to go way back to... Oh! (laughs) (laughs) For those people at home, the books just fell off the bookshelf. (laughs) It was a very NPR moment where you have the lovely, like, sound effects to contextualize. We just made one of those happen. (laughs) So you mentioned that it was around age 15 when you had existential concerns that first got you kind of onto the path of thinking about meditation in response to some of the things that were happening in your life. Can you tell us a little bit more about that time in your life and how you got interested in Tibetan Buddhism? Yeah. Um, when in just hearing your bio read, it, it struck me that the timing would have been perfect when you were, the exploration you were doing and starting as a clinician was exactly when I needed you. But I'm glad we're meeting some years later instead. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think for me, um, the period of time of, of adolescence of a lot of looking and lack of certainty, you know, a lot of going to Grateful Dead shows and looking for things there and asking questions. And um, I, I think it was partly, you know, I look at it now contextually, like in a kind of developmental perspective, but I think also just a personality style uh, the English teacher who exposed me uh, that sounds like a weird term <laughs> he exposed me um, to Buddhism who who first um, introduced me um, Dean Slider who's an author actually would be a good guest for y'all to hang out with sometime he teases me now every time I see him that I was also like a total misanthrope at the time and apparently I came to his office hours at age 15 and I was like he had just introduced all these, we're taking literature of enlightenment. And I come in and I'm like, Dean, yeah, yeah, with like all the meditation, you know, the problem with the world is these other people and they're jerks. <laughs> and so he loves like just, you know, tapping back to that. But I think, you know, what he's helped me see over over time is like starting from that fundamental problem that felt very like visceral to me made the teachings that I'm continuing to try to unpack and will be for the rest of my life. Um, they seemed really on point and still do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it seems like you went on a lot of long meditation retreats and spent a lot of time uh, meditating. More than my family would have liked, less than my teachers. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, it's one of these things that... 
as I started studying more and spending time once I got into college, um, trying to understand the concepts, you quickly hit a wall where you can't understand them conceptually. And you kind of either have to make a, a choice at that point of like, am I going to be a BSer and sort of like a cocktail budologist? Or like, am I really going to try to get in there with this stuff. And I, I was clear, I think, because of the early introduction I'd had that practice was the only way to really do that. And when you start practicing, you know, you see that a lot of this stuff is so the habits run deep, that it's understanding and being able to make these changes takes a lot of attention, which then makes the preciousness of a retreat pretty um valuable. And I was lucky I came to it at a time in my life when I could do it. Now it'd be like, I'm not going away for a hundred days. I've got a seven, four and three year old. So that's just like, that wouldn't be the compassionate act. <laughs> well, maybe tempting at times. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the one night away I try, I don't feel so guilty about anymore <laughs> or two or three. <laughs> so you do use uh, some Tibetan terms like lojong. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right. And gom and dampasam. Can, pronounced all three, right? Can you say something about um, the Tibetan uh, approach and uh, the use of meditation and the the way in which you kind of embraced it in the book? I'm so glad you asked that question, in part because it's something I've been thinking about that as I've um, been in dialogue with people who are similarly in a, um, with a purpose of trying to bring these practices and make them widely accessible. And there's very kind of divergent perspectives around what to do with the traditional frameworks. And I just had with a real mentor of mine who's you know been doing this kind of translational work for as long as I've been alive, but he, he really holds a perspective. We don't use Tibetan terms. We wanna translate everything fully into the frameworks in the cultures we're operating in. For me, it was important to keep the terms because I also feel so strongly that while I, these are general human, ideas, and we can talk more about what the ideas are, but that they were so powerful in context for me. And on the off chance that like one person listening to this is going to find a particular idea to be really important to them, I want them to be able to trace back if they, if and when they want to, the deep history and context of that. So it's, it's, I really appreciate your noticing and bringing up the choice to keep the terms. And it was not without thought and not without debate <laughs> um pause there are you it, would it be useful to look at any one of those i would like to look at all three wow <laughs> <laughs> all right starting with lojong starting with lojong um so mind heart training um is you know it's interesting one of the things i love about the system is it, well first of all to contextualize it for those of us who are here listening um, who've read teachings or been to teachings by the Dalai Lama, this is so much uh, the thinking that he's referring back to over and over again, the system of thought and practice. And it's a, a really, um, um, the thing I love about it is it includes a set of really profound and beautiful meditation practices, but it includes this this kind of mental training aspect where you learn, um, part of it is learning a set of what gets translates as like slogans. So that you learn things like, um, uh, this time do something different, 
which is then there's 59 kind of phrases like that. So the this time do something different means like when you're about to do that thing that you always do when you're uncomfortable and it's never served you in the past, this time try something different. Um, so there's all these kind of little pithy slogans that you learn and internalize so that they can give you a kind of, you know, the movie, The Matrix, those moments where you like reality catches and it opens up and you can make different choices because of that fluidity. These slogans give you that in the context of daily life. So this for me was actually the basis for thinking about when I look at the movement around mindfulness now that has gotten so much power in our culture and it's transfixed so many people's imagination, I think we're way over-oriented towards talking about seated meditation. And I think as long as that's the case, we miss the opportunities that seeing these practices in action offer. And that's what Lojong has been teaching for, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So that's kind of like the root of why I think it's so important. And, you know, that's it's not a position that I'm Pema Chudrin writes and talks so much about these practices. Like it's the foundation of many of the seminal um, thinkers who've introduced in a really important, profound way, these practices and frameworks into our culture. They're drawing on this system. So that was one. That was good. <laughs> so this idea though, of being able to keep the heart in the mind, I hadn't really quite thought, ever thought about it that way. So it's about you know, quieting the mind or training the mind, but keeping the heart in the mind. And I think this is one of the things like um, that the physical locatedness of where we're orienting our consciousness. Is it in our head, like up at the top of our body? Is it in our chest and our physical heart region? I think that it's it's interesting that for many of us, we are oriented towards thinking of our consciousness as being somewhere around the top of, I'm pointing to my head for those of you who are listening. Um, and in the Tibetan, the use of the terms heart and mind, they're, we, you, they're interchangeable in a sense. And you can translate Lojong as either mind training or mental training or heart training. And I think that it has a really important point of emphasis if you want to include this as training our hearts, training habits of heart, and questioning the assumptions we have about where is the root of our consciousness located both in our bodies or between these faculties if we're differentiating them in the way many of us might be. Mm -hmm. Okay, what about gum? Gum. Gum is the Tibetan word that's often translated as meditation. And so what I pick up on in the book, and I'm not the first to make this point, but I'm using it in a pretty distinct way in the book, is that instead of tra translating it as meditation, we can also translate it as familiarization, habituation. And a big piece of what I'm talking about in the book, which is consistent with Lojong, is this is all a worldview and a perspective and that we can train in it and get better and better at it. So if we think of all of that as a practice or to use like, you know, another term is a, a mindset that 
we or or to leverage the fact of neuroplasticity in retraining our habits. So I, I think it's really important this distinction, which comes back to what I was saying before, that we're overemphasizing seated meditation and losing so much of the richness if we think of all of life as an opportunity to be cultivating attitudes of heart, honing our attention, and you know, twenty other things. Mm-hmm. As I was saying to you a few minutes ago about the founder of our school, uh, Dr. Haridas Chowder, who came from Calcutta, and he had studied the integral yoga of Sri Aurobindo, who believed that all life is yoga. Everything that we do, if we can bring that kind of attention and presence to everything we do, it's not just the asanas in a yoga class. So this kind of resonates a bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's using when we catch ourselves completely missing that goal in the context of life to see that that itself is the most important moment of training that we have um which is why you know i keep coming back to this refrain if we only think that we can train our attention or our hearts on a meditation cushion we are missing so much opportunity so it's a profound point that your founder uh, made here and it's i think it's it's a game changer Mm-hmm. And then the third one was the the Dampasum. So Dampasum, the way I'm using it in the book, it's it's talking about the process of how we practice. So one way of describing Dampasum is like literally how you would approach each meditation session. You would set an intention, you know, one of bodhicitta or the um, altruistic compassionate stance. So I'm, I'm going to take my seat and meditate so that all beings may benefit. Like that's kind of the traditional intentions we would be setting the st- setting that um, stake in the ground at the beginning of our meditation practice. So that's step one of the three in Tampasum. Then we would do our meditation practice, whatever the practice is that we're doing. And there's many different ones in the Tibetan system. And then at the end, we dedicate the merit. So we expand our awareness beyond the practice we were cultivating during the session. We also dedicate it so that it can have the broadest possible impact. So coming back to the fact that like, may my meditation practice be of service to not just like my own mental health today, but like everybody I encounter, everyone they encounter, like resuming that wide, vast view. So anyways, what... I'm talking about in this book is like, let's take this framework of Dampasum and apply it off the cushion. So, okay, like I'm going to teach a class today or do carpool, like pick any activity. And I set the intention as I'm going into it. I want to, in the context of this experience, like picking up carpool, I've got a a van full of, you know, wild seven-year-olds. I want to use this to cultivate presence or cultivate compassion. And then I go do the thing with my full attention. And then at the end, I click up and take the perspective to reflect how did it go if I like lost my temper 10 times and I said like, okay, well, clearly there's, you know, I need to continue with this goal and maybe chunk it down this way. But that I, the effort itself appreciating that is an important part of the process. So the last thing I'll say is like the real meaning I think of Dampasum and why it's relevant to us today is I think one of the places we go off the rails with practice is we get too perfectionistic and then we take ourselves out of the game. If we see it as a process 
that we're going to be undertaking in this moment, today, tomorrow, for the rest of our lives and iterating and improving, that will keep us engaged in a very different way. And isn't it cool that that's kind of consistent with the process of design thinking where you, you know, you try to, you have an idea, you prototype it, you see how it lives in the world, you look back and reflect on it, and then you use that for your next iteration. That's how I'm arguing we should think of practice. And that's consistent with what we know works in terms of behavior change as well. So in the book, you talk about uh, Dampasim as being this 2,000-year-old system that is, is, is the reflection is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, sort of what you just described with the carpool experience. Yes, and even if, so we don't get into like, did I do it right? I'm such a bad person. I, you know, I either I messed up my meditation or people are so worried often when I'm, you know, te- when we're starting to practice these things, we will fail many, many times over. And each time we notice that we failed to keep our attention where we wanted it to be, that's the win, that's the process. So I think it's just such a brilliant system that I hope to take into my own practice. And I I think when I can have that mindset, it makes a huge difference. So you mentioned that paying attention to our feelings is really the very definition of mindfulness. So there's a lot in the feelings, I guess, in reflecting on the carpal experience, a lot in the feelings that you experienced that brought your attention there somehow or had gave you some way to think about it differently? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that the understanding what our feelings are as they're happening is and seeing them as they're embodied in our experience is such an important and profound practice. And the definition that I most prefer for mindfulness is the intentional use of attention, the intentional use of attention. And this, again, is consistent with the framework I'm talking about. I don't hear in the phrase the intentional use of attention saying, close your eyes, quiet your mind. No, we can be intentionally attentive while we're doing carpool, while we're doing work, while we're sitting with a client, whatever, while we're talking and doing a podcast and sitting in a room together. So I I think that's like that broad relevance is actually really important. And it has its danger, too, that we could rationalize that everything's mindfulness. So I don't hold myself accountable to a real practice. That's another question. But you didn't ask that yet. So I'm not answering it. (laughs) You read my mind. (laughs) You also talk about um, mindfulness training is better a better way to use the kind of the terminology than meditation, because you said that you were typing and all of a sudden you had typed mind funless instead of mindfulness. Yeah, it's just it's so interesting. I think the like over seriousness with which um, we can sort of take this idea of practice and growth and, you know, spirituality, however you want to think about it. And I think that, you know, to the point that you raised, if we can see these as ways of being throughout our life, and I think that that gives us a much, like, at the same time, it gives us much higher goal. It also is very humbling, because by definition, then, like, that's unattainable in terms of doing it perfectly. So we have to immediately grapple with that. At some some point, you got uh, you got connected to Hope Lab. 
Can you say a little bit about how that happened? And I went to the website today just to understand a little bit about this incredible project for kids with kids and teens with cancer. Yes. Um, so I had the good fortune to connect up um, when I was working at the Compassion Center at Stanford. Um, we, I, the first thing I did was set up design and start to implement a teacher training program for our compassion cultivation training course. And that whole initiative was um, funded by the Omid Jars and Hope Lab is a R&D company um, organization that is one of their um, entities that um, is in Redwood City, or actually now it's in San Francisco, at the time was in Redwood City. So I engaged with them because I had the opportunity, I'd heard there was this amazing woman, Pat Kristen, who was CEO of Hope Lab at the time, now is managing director of the Omidjar Group. And I'd been hearing around that she was amazing and awesome and I should meet her. And so I, I when I took this role on, I was I um, at Seacare, I reached out to her, you know, to ask if we could talk and it became very clear that there was just so much interesting work and and not just interesting work, but the way in which she ran the organization and the process of thinking about solving, um, not solving or addressing, um, you know, the issues that children who are living with cancer would face. And um, there's this, it, it's a, it was an amazing um, organization that grew out of Pam Omidyar's vision that gaming could be a resource for these kids who were battling cancer and that they, through the act of gaming, could engage with their mindset about their illness in a way that would be um, supportive of their own resilience. And so they did. They went about the whole process in such an interesting way where it wasn't just develop the video game and put it out there, but it was like partner with neuroscientists at Stanford and go into the hospitals and spend a lot of time talking to kids and families and trying to understand their worldview and putting all of this together and iterating on the process um, and trying to create something that really like lived in a way that was impactful. Um, so it's an amazing organization. And by the time I intersected with them, out of that process, they became questioned they became interested in the larger question of resilience. Um, and so that for me was a really, so looking at compassion and mindfulness as resources for um, boosting our resilience. And like, not, does is that true? And what does the research suggest? And how would you approach that as like interventions? And what is the connection to the uh, idea of neuroplasticity, would you say? Um, so in terms of mindfulness or, or gaming or just bringing the neuroscience into it, because this mm -hmm. is the interesting thing about your book is you're getting a lot of positive reviews about it being evidence based. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Talking about neuroplasticity from the perspective of these practices, I think in a fundamental way, the way I understand it is if the fact is that the good news is we're not stuck with the minds that we have today. Our minds will change in response to our environment, in response to our habits, in response to our own bodies, to all these factors. So that in itself, you know, was a huge insight for science about a decade ago, right? And if we want to look at 
practices like mindfulness and compassion from a 10,000 foot view, what they do is offer us an opportunity to rewire the way that we are thinking, experiencing, perceiving, behaving. Um, and I think, again, that that's consistent with the process of Dampasum or looking at this as we're all works in progress because it's a training. So we have some habits that run counter to these qualities we're trying to develop, um, but understanding that we can rework them. And, and then part of what I try to bring in in the book is examples of how neuroscientists are using um, the tools that we have to understand the brain and other biological markers to see what the impact of these practices is on our body. So that in turn can inform having us do the most effective versions of the practices. This guiding question that you, you reference a few times in the book is what is the smallest thing a person can do to move the needle on the pain he or she is experiencing? And that was a question that captured my imagination 100% from spending time with Pat Kristen at Hope Lab and Steve Cole. Um, and he's a genomics researcher who at the time was running the research um, for the game that we were just talking about and then writ large on resilience. And that was their worldview that part of the issue of translating research into the world is that if we as researchers want to insist on impossible protocols and in keeping things so pristine and big because that's the way we're used to viewing it, then they won't live in the reality that people experience. So taking this kind of user insight perspective, applying it to research, to practice. So instead of what's the highest fidelity option to do in this situation, starting with the question of like, what's the smallest thing we could do that would make a difference that would that would help people? It was a total figure ground shift for me that has changed 100% the way I think and teach at this point. Mm -hmm. So maybe coming down from 10,000 feet to a foot. Yeah, yeah, and taking that step instead of getting paralyzed by you know, it has to be the perfect direction. It's like, what is my next step that I can learn from, you know, do my best with, make mistakes with, and then make the next step and the next and the next and I'll zig and I'll zag, but at least I'm moving and learning in that kind of approach. It's a more flexible growth mindset orientation. And imagine too, if you look at the national news at all or the international news, this may help a bit in continuing to put one foot in front of the other. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, when you said that, the thing that just struck me, I was in LA last week um, visiting the office of um, one of my students from last quarter. He's an MBA student, but he's a co-founder of this organization called Blavity. And it, Blavity is, um, it, it's a contraction for black gravity. And it's this amazing media, I don't even know how to describe it because they do so many cool things, but they're trying to put out narratives that are focused on black American experience and um, that are both raising awareness of existing suffering and raising awareness of hope. And it's just, their work is amazing. So anyways, one of the things we were talking about when I was visiting is for the staff, every single time, 
you know, there's one of the many shootings that happens and they get like, you know, it bla- they have the software so it comes up immediately because part of their role is to disseminate information. But what y- what they do with that internally, um, that's the piece that I think becomes really interesting and, and vital. And they're asking this question of like, how, how do we tow this line of, um, you don't want to get like empathic overload, you know, compassion collapse, as we call it, like you get desensitized to it, but you can't also can't live and function in a state of heightened distress over time. So this is where compassion comes in as a really in- important resource and understanding that distinction and in making that available to them in in the work that they're doing is really, in my mind, like an important case study of this that's happening. Blavity. Blavity. Check it out. It's a great combination of words to, to brand something that way. And Aaron, one of the co-founders, he said the way they came up with it was when they were in college, they were, um, it was a predominantly white um, student body and they would notice it like at meal times, like, you know, by the end of sort of hanging out and everybody eating and finishing eating, that there would be like a couple of tables with all the black students together. And it was so it was the black gravity pulling them together to kind of process the highs and lows and, you know, the same kinds of themes the being able to share notes on their experience of this environment and the suffering and the hope of it. it was, it's a pretty great title yeah <laughs> must be fun to be proud of a, a former student who's gone on to do such things he's he's an amazing man definitely um excited to see i think he's going to be a person who's going to move forward how we can operationalize a lot of the things that we're talking about tonight and for people who aren't typically the ones that have been part of these conversations so it's it's inspiring you just mentioned uh, compassion overload. Is that what you said? Because I'd like to talk a little bit more about the differences between empathy and sympathy and compassion and, and activating compassion. Because and, I think that's a really important part of the book that uh, speaks to maybe the challenge a lot of us have right now or compassion fatigue. Or Well, I'm so curious too, you know, with just knowing that you've been sitting with people with awareness and their suffering for pretty long time you know that you know it I think what I'm after is what do you see as the importance of getting clear on this distinction just to name it because I'm I'm inferring that you're very clear that there's a something at stake here what do you see that well in my in my office when I'm sitting with clients or patients it's it's one thing because it sort of set up in a way that I'm I'm prepared to be there and I sort of know the story and I know how to behave and, and it's 50 minutes <laughs> so it's kind of bounded but walking between here and my practice and seeing the suffering uh, is, a, is a really difficult moment to walk past somebody who is actively psychotic or in the throes of some kind of a uh, drug or alcohol uh, collapse it's quite amazing to witness the world right now and wonder how do we how do we how do we connect to something that we could possibly feel like we could make a difference or are we just here to bear witness? Yeah. Yeah, it's a really it's a profound question and when we also, you know, can consider the question of whether how we're all implicated and you know, we live in these cities where we 
we haven't solved basic problems like people having homes and what are we doing to care for people with mental illness and there's a lot to that so the compassion collapse concept i feel like is um the simplest way that i was introduced to it where it really stuck to me as salient is like the the quick version of it is if you are trying to get people to respond to a village of starving people in Africa, if you show an image of the village of starving people, there will be less responsiveness than if you show one starving individual, then people will act and they will give money. So there's researchers looking at this question of like, what is it about the fact that and when does that line come where we can't wrap our mind around the extent of the suffering so we shut down and we do nothing? Mm-hmm. And understanding that in the different kinds of conditions, um, you know, if we're trying to understand that for the sake of giving or if we're trying to understand that as a professional caregiver um, or, a, you know, a family caregiver, and it's around the clock caring for someone in a way that... Um, is difficult to sustain and some, you know, definitely wiser people than me, like Tupton Jimpa, the Dalai Lama's interpreter, the way he's been expressing it is that we are not physiologically capable of sustaining these high levels of empathy over time. We don't have that ability. And it's interesting if you look at the research from people like Tanya Singer showing the neural signatures of empathy versus compassion, the fact that they are different, our brains look different, we're in a state of empathy or a state of compassion. And so this all then backs into the questions like, well, what is that difference? And why is it that empathy is unsustainable? Some argue that compassion is sustainable. And so then the movement becomes a okay, if you're a professional caregiver or a family caregiver, how can you train yourself to get into this mode of compassion, which is a sustainable, renewable resource, as opposed to empathy, which is what's leading to this epidemic of burnout. So it becomes really crucial to understand. And I think that's where a lot of the programs like the one that I've been working with at Stanford and with the Compassion Institute are coming in to to have a way to not just theoretically answer it, but like train people, let's put programs together, let's understand the mechanisms at work, let's put these into different organizational systems and see what, what happens in terms of the kind of impact it will have. Um, so I, I think that these distinctions and the science of it, this is a place where the practice is really, they're all reinforcing each other in a really important way. So you speak about this course at Stanford that apparently is one of the most popular classes for 45 years or something, and you refer to it as the touchy-feely course? Yes. So touchy-feely started decades ago at the business school, and the, its the, its official title is Interpersonal Dynamics. And it's the famous um, sort of signature course of the school. And and to this day, you you know, I'll meet people who are CEOs of major companies and you ask them the question, what did you get out of Stanford Business School that was valuable to you and or the most valuable? And they'll say it was this class, hands down. You know, any technical skill that they would have learned 10 years ago, totally obsolete by now. But the people 
insight and the self insight is what is crucial to them in retrospect. So this class is, it's such an interesting, there's a, a kind of um, intensive. So after I had started teaching my class at the business school, so many students were talking about how their mindfulness and compassion training work was intersecting with interpersonal dynamics, which would make sense. If you're becoming more attuned to your own emotional experience and your own habits of attention, then that's going to play into your interchange with other people. So I was like, I'm so curious about what they're actually doing there and went on one of the um, weekend touchy-feely intensives. Um, I had a little baby at the time. I think it was my middle guy who's four now. And so the whole family slept down and we went to like the coast and a little south of Palo Alto area on the coast. And, um, and spent a weekend basically sitting in a circle with people speaking there are some ground rules but basically like you're speaking your truth in this circle and then expressing how you're experiencing other people it was like fairly simple in terms of describing the process but really profound and like a lot went down in like the two days <laughs> like all the things happened and like you know there was laughter there was anger there was you know it's like a lot of just putting people in a room and getting and giving them that training and the course then includes more than this sort of circle of sitting there's frameworks they introduce there's sort of the conceptual academic piece to scaffold there's writing and then they don't only have a weekend they they meet like for hours weekly over the course of the quarter and then they have a retreat. So it's it's a pretty cool and hardcore kind of experience, I think, that is I was fascinated by, I still am. I wanna shift for a minute to talk about um, having purpose at work. You uh, indicate that it is possible. And then I read this incredible Gallup poll statistic that said 33% of people are actively engaged 16% are active, actively disengaged, and 51% are just not engaged. I mean, it's kind of an amazing, amazing uh, statistic. It is an amazing statistic. I just love that phrase of, like, actively disengaged. Like, what does that look like? Like, let's all do that for a minute. Like, um, but it, it's related to the also the rates of inclivity, or it's the research term for workplace rudeness and workplace bullying are on the rise. And I think these are, you know, related. If we don't feel like our work matters, we don't feel like we matter to our work. This is where we're spending most of our time. We're with our coworkers more than we're with our family and friends. And there's no big meaning to any of it than all the bumps in the road with the other people when they're chewing with their mouth open will literally drive us crazy over time. And like you read the research on what are the things that are the most frustrating for people in the workplaces. And some of the answers are, you know, they're so human. It's like, when my coworkers talk too loud on the phone, it drives me nuts day in and day out, because I'm in this cubicle, I'm in occupying this space. So I think it becomes a really interesting moment to then ask the question, what difference does it make if we are clear, and we are strong in our purpose together? And how does that then influence not only our own engagement, but our own perception of the people around us? Mm -hmm. So maybe we could just touch now on, on technology and how uh, the I guess the allure of being connected and doing things faster and this whole idea of multitasking, which seems like it's a bit of a myth. 
Yeah. The myth of multitasking. We can only do one thing at a time and we can switch back and forth between things. And when we switch, there's costs and, you know, costs in terms of the quality of our attention, the time that it takes to reorient ourselves and the, the other thing. Um, yeah. Go ahead. I was just thinking, what do you do when that person in the next cubicle is talking really loud on their cell phone? <laughs> what do I do or what should we do? <laughs> um, you can answer either way. <laughs> which will be more entertaining? And which what's will the be more mindful helpful? way to deal with protecting your resilience? Yeah. Well, and this is where I love, I feel like these topics wouldn't be interesting if there was one you know, clear answer. If the answer was like, oh, I'm compassionate, which means I'm nice. And I, you know, all of a sudden I remind myself, be compassionate and the annoyance goes away. Like that's like not going to work. It's not reality. So I think there's some interesting questions we can deploy at that moment. Like what am I doing with my attention? Um, where am I, like, am I really stressed and upregulated? And, you know, what's going on over here that is like having me orient my, the thing, the only thing that matters in me in the world right now is this person's talking loudly on the phone. So like, there's that set of inquiry we could do. Um, you know, if we want to tip into like that person's being obnoxious and offensive, like then this can also get interesting because then we want to like, okay, if that's the case, being compassionate to them isn't like ignoring it and letting it go. There's got to be this candor piece, right? And integrity, but doing that with care for them, like not as a righteous indignation, like blast them um, in a hurtful way. So this is where I feel like these are the situations that I get so excited about because they're so hard and so complex and also so important. If we're not practicing compassion in that moment, the compassion is a useless construct. And if it's easy answer, then compassion is a boring construct. And I think it's neither of those things. So, you know, there's so many layers to it. Like, and only I can answer the question for myself if I decide to approach the person what does it mean to do that in a compassionate way? You know, you from the outside observing me, if I'm giving them feedback about my experience of them, I could be doing that compassionately in the service of our relationship and the service of their growth. Or I could be doing this, saying the exact same words with the exact same tone with the opposite of compassion. So I love the, like, the behavioral piece also becomes interesting because you can't know. And this is one of the Lojong slogans. It says, we are our own witness. We're our, our own primary witness because you can't judge from the outside. It's we have to have the um, clarity ourselves and the honesty and the like courage to own like, you know, I can justify what I just did as being a stand of integrity and candor but really i was just like i'm, I'm rationalizing being mean in the service of giving this person growth-oriented feedback like or maybe i really was trying to help them because everybody is hating on them and i'm the one who's gonna be the one to say something so that they know and have the choice to change like it just all depends on where we're coming from with it mm -hmm. and the receptivity Totally. Then that's a whole other side of like, how does that, even if I come to this with compassion and it really harms that person is, the skillfulness becomes another question in their receptivity. Like, is the way I go about it a match for what they need? 
and yeah, it's how are they, where are they that day, and how are they hearing it? How's it landing? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you also talk about this idea of that when we work more than 49 hours per week, I'm sure that doesn't apply to any of us here, but uh, there's a sense of scarcity that starts to occur. Can you say more about that scarcity? Yeah, the, the mindset that like there's not enough time, there's not enough resources, I'm so busy, I can never get it done, I'm not good enough, I'm that, that framework of coming at it from not enough, overwhelmed. And actually for me, one of the turning points with this idea was being around, you know, back to the Hope Lab time. Um, I think one of the things I, I got out of working with Pat Kristen again was that the sort of intentional practice of not herself or in the community defaulting to like privileging the person who's the most busy is somehow winning the day the person who's working the longest like that there's a we choose the language we use we ultimately own our choices about our time or we own our our ability to communicate back if there's like there's more work than I can possibly do in this period of time. Like we have agency that we can communicate that to our team, to the person we report to solve for that. Um, So I think there's like a shift that we can take from being a victim to being saturated with time and resources that are out of our control and shifting that to, I can take a different, more agentic mindset that would then allow me to, I can't control everything, but there's a lot of things I can control or influence. Does that include technology? (sighs) Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Time will tell, but we need to, we need to be, this is a place where the intentional use of attention is so crucial, especially, you know, our technology is designed to draw our attention. It's not like a, a neutral thing. All the gadgets and the phones and the computers and the interfaces, like the dings, they they give us a, a, a hit of of reward. Um, so I, the way I try to frame it is now more than ever, we need to understand the importance of attention and storing our attention. And if we don't, the implications can be really big. And it's hard. It's totally humbling. It's really hard. Yeah, I think in some ways, uh, having the cell phone to pull out and fiddle with is replace smoking. Mm. That's a great point. (laughs) Because it used to be that's sort of what people would do, you know, Mm -hmm. it would be a pause. Or you, you know, you pull out your phone to look out time it is and you have no idea what time it was. You just saw it. But, you know, the point you make was that it's developed to addict us uh, for that hit of dopamine dopamine like we get when we uh, enjoy food or drugs or sex or yeah and I think part of like the challenge here too is it it doesn't solve our problem if we demonize technology so what we then have to do and it's like piggybacking what I was saying about you know the same taking responsibility for our attention and our habits including the fact that like you know I know perfectly well my family life goes better if I dock my computer and my phone and silence them and go have my evening with my kids when I'm done with work. And I don't do that 100% of the time. Is that the phone and computer's fault? Or does it matter? Should we think of it in terms of like fault? Or it's just, it's a choice. There will, will be implications of if I dock it, 
and have some discipline on that. And if I don't, the night will go differently. And, you know, so maybe that's the way you frame that as the experiment with before making any changes in our technology. Can we get really curious about, like you're saying, that if this is the new smoking, then what am I feeling the moment I pull out the phone? One of my students was had a really profound story with this. She was, um, she took this as like one of her daily practices to set her password to breathe on her phone. And so it became this really interesting exploration of the moments of anxiety between things, waiting for class or meeting up with a friend for a meal, that the habit was to pull the phone out, like to your point, when you'd pull a cigarette out to self-soothe, but she hadn't realized she was doing that. Having to type in breathe made her realize she was trying to self-soothe with something that wasn't actually soothing, like a cigarette is, you know, that that cycle. So I love the, the metaphor. You, I think it's totally on point. This idea, though, that um, mindfulness can lower stress level it can, I mean, it, it's, it's not like actually leaving your cubicle. It's kind of a shift somehow in that moment. Uh, maybe it's typing breathe, but you talk about the importance of, of being able to do that for neuroplasticity. Yeah, and this is, I think, really consistent with, I think there's, it's interesting that there's different choices of how to effectively deal with stress. So one is like if we're, realizing we're getting revved in the example of being in our cubicle and maybe I'm getting, I'm trying to work and I'm getting annoyed by the loud, you know, person next to me, or I'm just getting upset, anxious and with my work, you know, one way of using mindfulness would be to take some deep breaths and downregulate our bodies. Another way is, you know, the way that Kelly McGonigal talks about, if you haven't seen her um, awesome Ted talk on the topic, I highly recommend it. She talks about bringing in a mindset approach. So it's what she's saying is like under, she says it more eloquently than this, but seeing our body's response of stress is our way of meeting the demand that's coming our way. So instead of trying to downregulate, reframing our body's upregulation and interpreting it differently has positive effects on our physiology. It's a, such an interesting point. So there's kind of two, it's two productive ways of dealing with it. One is like de-stress and the other one is reinterpret your stress. And they're different, but they're both beneficial options. Mm. And when you say down-regulating, is that more like just blocking or avoiding or? Or like taking the mindful, using mindfulness as a way to, um, to it, it's like the soothing properties of it, of um, of tethering our attention to a specific object, which then has the effect of having our bodies and our minds settle, because we that's the outcome of when we don't ruminate or recycle thoughts or chase thoughts, but we we precisely put our attention on a focus, the outcome of that is this soothing response. So the relaxation response. Oh. <laughs> as, it's a, as Dr. Benson coined it back a long time ago, 60s, I guess it was. He's really ahead of his time, in some ways. 
to make Definitely. that mind-body connection. Definitely. Yeah, one of the things you talk about, maybe this is an example of, of a way to kind of bring awareness, attention, is this, this feeling that we sometimes have when we find ourselves judging. And you just say it right out. You just say, judging sucks. I'm very judgy, and I judge my judging. <laughs> <laughs> judging is such a... And it's such a funny one, that like, because we can judge ourselves for judging, which doesn't end the judging. It's just like makes things one step more crazy. Um, so yeah, I think this is a place where we can like kind of pick our 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 path in of being aware, or mindful of oh, here's a moment of judging or self compassionate, like it judging is a pattern that's hard to break and if i'm uncomfortable with it the suffering of that or you know using it to anchor to compassion like we're all sitting here judging all the time um which has a lot of costs to it that we all suffer from and we also by the way can't and don't want to get rid of judging because judging and evaluating what's going on is part of what we need to do to function and be safe like so you know it's not like we want to get rid of that capacity we couldn't function so we've all we're all in the conundrum of what do we do with that and and what how do we work with it it's good for humility it seems mm -hmm. <laughs> you uh, also make reference to the fact that you happen to come across susan sontag's uh, obituary do you read obituaries, obituaries regularly? <laughs> <laughs> I was just curious about that. I was probably procrastinating. Um, yeah, I was. Someone had given me um, a book of hers a long time ago that really made an impression on me. And do you have the quote in front of you? I do, and I'd, I'd like to ask you to read it if you would. Serious fiction writers think about moral problems practically. They tell stories. They narrate. They evoke our common humanity and narratives with which we can identify, even though the lives may be remote from our own. They stimulate our imagination. The stories they tell enlarge and complicate and therefore improve our sympathies. They educate our capacity for moral judgment. Love this quote, it's really profound. And you know, it's interesting, I think an example for me of this in action is um, a dear, a new and dear friend of mine, Lauren Lungrich, wrote a uh, show called On My Block. It's a new Netflix series that was just released recently. And it's awesome, highly recommend it to anyone who's listening. It's, you enter into the worldview of this, it's kind of a conglomerate of, um, of low SES LA urban community. And it's just getting into the narrative of these lives. And I feel like, you know, everybody I know who watches it, like you have to have an accountability buddy so you don't stay up all night long like <laughs> I did and like everybody ends up doing. Um, but it, it's just such a great example of the power of fiction or story to pull us into another worldview that then just not only opens ours but but shows us you know all the things that she's talking about here they enlarge uh, they point out our stereotypes they complicate you know who we think is right or wrong and us and them and all of this and it's it's amazingly powerful um 
you know, when we find, there's so many examples of finding literature and art, but I think that's a big place where this all is an important part of the question to continue in that perspective taking process through these vehicles. And I think part of why you put the quote there, because you said it was a great example of compassion. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, this is, if we're talking about compassion as the recognition and willingness to engage with another person's suffering, one of the best ways we do this is through story. So either hearing another person's narrative, like an actual person, or also through literature as a way to enter into um, a worldview that's wildly different from ours, yet somehow relatable through this underlying common humanity that we somehow can understand a story that's so different from our own, but we get it somehow. And and just the fact of that, I, I, that's what I love about this quote. I mean, that's that's shows that we have this wiring for compassion and understanding and perspective taking. And it just becomes about like doing that more and setting up our environments that so it pulls that out of us instead of the opposite. So from Susan Sontag to Samuel Beckett, his quote, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail better. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's become such a cliche, right? Like we're all here in Silicon Valley, the like fail fast, fail better, failing is the path to like tech victory Um, (laughs) and victory writ large. And so I got really curious about like, where did this idea come from and there's something really profoundly useful when we get like underneath the cliche of that and you know again to this process approach to these practices of mindfulness and compassion and what all Um, and you know just this like we start where we are we're all works in progress I think humility um for people it seems who really like occupy that worldview whether they're tech innovators or you know, people who really like approach life trying to understand it, including taking in the pain of doing that, then that requires a lot of um, courage. And so I, I think it's like, it's one of these things when we dig into it and it's it's not easy. I don't know anyone who doesn't have the sort of reflex to, um, when, when something fails, when I mess up, when I get feedback that's, not positive it doesn't my first inclination is to recoil or feel anxious or defensive or something so it takes courage to look at that and then get underneath that and try to take in the learnings there and and it's that's where I think that it gets really interesting and and challenging um but super important. And if we want to be tech innovative geniuses, then apparently that's what we need to do. I haven't done it yet, but I'll let you know when I do. Coupled with the aggressive optimism and disruptive thinking to fail better. (laughs) Active disengagement too. (laughs) Must be interesting to be in that world. At the Stanford Graduate School of Business and... (laughs) I when I had my fifteenth undergrad reunion, I went to Stanford as an undergrad, and I got teased so many times by um, friends that were like literally least likely person to be teaching at the Stanford Business School ever. Um, that would be me. <laughs> um, 
yeah. So I don't know. I don't, I feel like a bit like a Martian a lot of the time, but I think a lot of people feel like Martians a lot of the time. Mm. So maybe that's the good news. <laughs> Mars is a pretty great planet. I guess so they all are. <laughs> <laughs> From the Buddhist perspective, this idea though, that um, acknowledging your human imperfections and accepting the failure is part of the learning process and maybe not getting caught up in it too much and down the rabbit hole because I think that sometimes happens to people when they get negative feedback or they, they sink, they kind of cave in. Definitely, definitely. And I think, you know, especially because many of us have internalized a message along the way that the, the engine that drives our greatness, if we go above and beyond, if we do something great, many of us have this core belief that it comes from being fueled by self-deprecation or self-criticism that like I can be compassionate towards all of you, but I'm going to hold myself to a higher standard, which means I have to rail on myself when I make a mistake. And um, so one of the things that I, I think is such an interesting exercise that is illustrative of this point, we um, I collect from students when we're doing work on self-compassion as part of an anonymous survey the week before we meet in class. And I get them to share an example of like, name a specific time you messed up and what was your um, you know, response to that and the self-talk. So you're not like philosophizing, you're really like, you know, the bleep and the, you know, you bleep, um, all that stuff, like write that down, please. And, you know, also asking, um, then collecting the self-criticism and having um, a couple of people from the class stand up and read the examples of the kinds of self-critical thoughts that their classmates are expressing. Things like, you're a fraud, you don't belong here, you shouldn't have been admitted, um, you know, you're bleep, you know, just totally like denigrating thinking that nobody would ever say out loud to one another. And each of them thinks they're the, they've been the only one doing it all along. So you have this moment where there's like 35 of you in the room realizing like, oh my God, I literally thought I was the only imposter here. I can't believe you're all feeling that way. And that's not just true at Stanford Business School. I mean, I think that's a human thing. So when we, yeah, so coming back to this question of like, I think this is where humor and normalizing the fact that like we have these stories, we have these narratives, we have this kind of criticism stuff that goes on. It's not the truth. Their scripts, their habits, they can change. Luckily, we can work on them, but we have to take them less, um, less seriously, less shamefully. And I think that's part of the power of having a community of learning, whether that's in a graduate school or otherwise, that it's like the power of knowing that we're all in this together, which leads to a humility and a humor and just like kind of hope, <laughs> mm. ideally. And the hope must be especially important when you're raising little ones who you're hoping they're not going to internalize the negative feedback or whatever it is and be a conscious parent and you just exactly that is the main thing that I I find myself thinking about as a parent particularly for my seven-year-old daughter 
because this is something I've grappled with so much and it's and I'm aware of it, right? I know the research, I know the practices, but it's so habituated. And then when I see this little girl mirroring my patterns of speech and behavior, um, oh, it's so poignant. It's so poignant. And so we try I, I I think about a lot. I try to do different things around it, but it's real. Mm-hmm. Must be something in that carpool with seven, all those seven-year-olds. <laughs> Are they all girls? No, <laughs> no. We've got we've got some of it's it's because it's geographically based at this point. So um, it's uh, we're quite a we're quite a mixed crew. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you so much for coming up and spending the evening with us, and thank you, all of you, for being here as well. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.